Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash BHIS to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. The greatest threat to businesses today isn't the outsider trying to get in. It's the people you trust, the ones who already have the keys, your employees, contractors, and privileged users. 60% of online attacks are carried out by insiders. To stop these insider threats, you need to see what users are doing before an incident occurs. Observe it enables security teams to detect risky user activity, investigate incidents in minutes, and effectively respond. Get your free trial at observeit.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Mark your calendars for our Security Weekly Holiday Extravaganza show that will take place on December 19th. We'll be live streaming not well five one-hour panel discussions, and I, I just I added another segment. Uh, I think just yesterday, the day before, uh, yesterday maybe. Uh, I since you know the hosts from Security Weekly will be appearing on various of those five panel discussions, and we really didn't have a segment where all the hosts could come. Uh, together on one segment. So I added one at the end where we'll discuss hacker culture. Uh, I think it kind of split security history into the history and then one about uh, hacker culture. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Very much looking forward to that. So uh, you'll have uh, six, seven and a half hours of content that will be recorded on that day. So make sure you tune in. Securityweekly.com forward slash live. No stranger to the show. Farah Mavatuna is the CEO at NetSparker, and he's here today to talk about how to start building a web security program when you're maybe just adopting a, a DevOps and a CI/CD pipeline. Farah, welcome. Hey, how are you, Paul? Welcome. Oh, you know, nice to be back. <laughs> yes, nice to have you back. Um, and Farah, now you and I were talking, and it's something that I think many of us struggle with, and maybe some of us don't want to admit. We talk about all this new new processes and new technologies for deploying software, creating web applications, deploying web applications. And a lot of us, I think, are afraid to ask, so how do we get started? Like, where do we start? There's so much that we can do, but uh, like, how do you get started? Yeah, um, that, that's something that's been keep coming up uh, in front of me as I talk with more enterprises and a, as I see the challenges they have been facing. And it seems like everyone is trying to get into this phase of, hey, I've got tons of applications, mobile backends, web services, APIs, you know, all of that stuff. And they're like, okay, what do we do now? I mean, everyone has these um, kind of the perfect idea of web application security program, which is, which is very nice. So you start from the left, you know, the famous left-right kind of approach, like, you know, it's starting from the development, the earlier you get is better, and they're like all valid things. 
But what I've seen is kind of almost this either analysis paralysis problem kind of, hey, we want to start a web security program. We don't have it right now. And we got these pieces. We got that piece. Like, what is next? And also, you know, I, I kind of want to touch the, the fact that uh, what is kind of the perfect world and then what is kind of realistic execution, yeah. especially at scale. Yeah, agreed. Right. Because I think one of the one of the things we hear a lot about is this concept of shift left, shift left, shift left. But the question is, is how realistic is that right now for a lot of security organizations that are not talking to the DevOps teams? or don't even know a DevOps teams exists, right? So they're probably really far right, 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 trying to figure out how to get left. So it'd be interesting uh, to understand kind of where are some of the enterprises, one from where where is reality today? And then, you know, how do we move to what is the Nirvana state for web app security? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, let, let's start from like a very, very real example I've seen recently. So uh, one enterprise uh, got thousands of applications, right? Uh, literally, I think yeah, 2,000 or something in the range of. And they are like trying to do it. But the first thing they're trying to understand, hey, how do we look like? Like if we were to look at all our websites today, what would be the picture, right? And one of the ideas, oh, okay, uh, you know, we can... In a, in a nice web security program, you start from left, ignore the ship left, but you start from left. And then you say, oh, obviously, if I don't in introduce vulnerabilities, then I wouldn't have any vulnerability to deal with. And that's, you know, that's right. But now you have 2,000 applications. And if you were to say, hey, I'm just going to take a look at every single one of these applications, let's say from a static source code analysis point of view, uh, the, the very fact that in that kind of enterprise, even reaching to those 2,000 applications source code would easily take six to 12 months. I ignore anything like coming up back with results and the data, and then you fix that and all that challenge. Even just getting into the, all these different environments, um, all these continuous integrations, all this source code, you know, what is legacy, what is not. And, so, and how many like, different, you know, how many different languages uh, of, in code do they have? Right. We like to say, oh, we're going to settle on, you know, one or two languages. But I mean, even just looking at your configuration files that are different across, you know, no one has just two. If you've got 2000 applications, you've got way more than two languages in inside of any one of those. Right. Actually, it's even crazier than that. Like the more I understand these uh, massive enterprises and how, how they deal with these problems, it, it's quite it's it's terrifying from security point of view, and and they know that. So to give you an idea, ignore like how many languages here. You got like every single language um, that's ever written a web application or right. even some legacy C plus plus stuff. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, what you have is they are actually using like five, six different deployment yep. processes. Like there, there is no even standardization to say, hey, we all use Jenkins or, you know, TeamCity or GoCD or whatnot. Like you got like tons of different fact-tracking tools, tons of different CI tools. And if you think about it, to be fair, uh, the only way to retain your agility in this, that kind of organization, you need that kind of setup. You need to you give do. the teams the flexibility to do their own thing. But mm -hmm. like, what does that mean from security point of view? It, so, and that's for the 2,000 apps you know about right. and the five or six teams <laughs> that are doing it, let alone all the other potential apps that are sitting out there that you don't have any visibility into because it's some 
group in the corner <laughs> that has their that own is, you know is. and also the repositories can be different too right you talked about static code analysis well you know what if you're even doing something more basic like inventory control you need to know where all your software repositories are and some of those you may not even know about because that team spun up they were innovating like Ferro said they're using some new technology and they're using repos that are outside of your current visibility yeah like if you let, let, let's try to paint a picture of a very good, let's say, not perfect, but a very good mature web application security program. You would start from left and you would say, hey, I'm going to, first of all, train my engineers to write, you know, developers mm -hmm. to write secure code. Fantastic. So you've got a security program, you train them, you onboard them, you teach them secure coding. That's good. You've got to keep them up to date. So that's part of the challenge. But right. even one-on-one -on -one training is going to get you quite far. Mm -hmm. Then you move to the next step and it's like you can start on the idea on doing like dynamic checking there are various tools for various ideas and let's say you do some not all because you know there's limited support and the next step is the most crucial one right it's where we write the code we commit the code and then the code is being checked so like you know static source code analysis for example within your uh, ci cd dynamic testing right after your deployment on the staging environment or mm -hmm. you know whatever your ci cd works with so from the left you trained your developers now they write better code then you got id level integration ideally they even detect vulnerabilities automatically while they write new code and then as soon as you push the code, you do static analysis, another check, then as soon as you deploy, you do dynamic analysis. And then in production, possibly you have a web application firewall, some sort of change management, also unit SCA, software composition analysis. So that's your like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of figure out all your dependencies are secure and not, you know, not going out of date. And then depending on how complex your applications, and if you've got tons of, they will be fairly complex, then you need dynamic SCA kind of, like at the dust level, you need to also see all your dependencies that's not managed by, you know, package management tools that the SCA generally, you know, not behaving, you know, not work well. So it's like a very quick way of looking at it. And obviously after your web application firewall and everything, then you got this huge challenge of when I find vulnerabilities, what happens? And if you quickly touch that, whether SAS or Dust or whatever in between, there's like IS Rust that you can include into all these challenges, like interactive application testing, uh, or you know, uh, real-time application security protection, etc. But when you find vulnerabilities, then what you do, right? The, in, in again, ideal world, what you would like to see that all the vulnerabilities are going into the whomever is supposed to fix it. So let's say you find a vulnerability, you know who's responsible from that website as a team or like an individual. If it's SDLC, then you know who committed the code and you send them back the vulnerability and they fix it. And after the fix, ideally you want an automated retest so that you know the fix is real, it's deployed, everything is good. And this is kind of like a very, very obviously quick, you're like two minutes, best web application security program, you know, a bird real kind of look. Um, but <laughs> I, I think, you know, even then when I'm rushing through the steps, you can see how extremely complicated this can get. But also secondly, uh, to realizing a value from such a program on the left end of the, you know, whole journey is extremely uh, lagging indicator. So, you know, you get your developers write secure code, but hey, what about the code they've been writing for like fast, last five years yeah, right. and 10 years? <laughs> And 
if you think about that, so like the, the, the problem I am seeing exactly that like that challenge when they say, hey, you want to be better, but let's look at where you are right now. And majority of the companies, majority of the organizations, they are in a state where they got tons of applications and as you touch quite nicely, like, first of all, they don't even know what they have. Mm. So that's a, that's a very good state start, place to start actually. And secondly, once you have the inventory, then you want to look, what is your state right now? What are the vulnerabilities that you're going to get you hacked today, but not in three months when you release that new version, but today. So that's where I want to start. So I am genuinely diving into this problem and the kind of approaching from a very uh, like right to left. So let okay, let's first of all put out these fires and then let's ensure we are not creating new fires. But you cannot start from the left. I mean, you can, but what's going to happen then, you know, the, the part of the challenge is the budget, is the execution, is, you know, proving what you are doing to your board, to your upper management, to, to your CISO, depending on the organization. And the question is kind of, okay, if you start from here, what are the numbers? How much your security gets better in terms of like actual trackable data? within six to 12 months that you can go back and prove now you are better. So what you do, you build something great, but it can take almost two years to get value out of it. And if you get somehow breached in between, then that's end of the story because like, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to lose all the trust and everything and the, and the support. So it's a very, very challenging situation, but like, that's what I see, like starting from that middle ground almost. Yeah, because, so, you know, starting from the left uh, is like rebuilding the culture, first of all, potentially, right? Or reshaping the culture of your developers. It's a lot of tooling and automation that not only do you have to learn and not only do you have to implement, but then you have to test. And that whole process, like for what you said, like it can take two years, right? If you, especially if you've got thousands of applications, it takes a long time to, to get that in. Also, some of your developers may not be working on bugs and features, but working on the new uh, infrastructure to support this new process and this new CI/CD pipeline and all these tools and automation. So, and I, I organizations should do that. Don't get me wrong, right? But it's not something like where you can just overnight go, hey, look, we're doing DevOps, right? I think that's some of the misconceptions. Exactly, that's the situation. Like, I think everyone knows, oh, we got to shift left, we got to do this, we got to do that. But, I mean, that's correct. But in any organization that you, you have to be doing tons of stuff, but the way you do things, you say, okay, like what is the lowest effort and maximum impact that I can get? Whether right. that's, um, you know, that's resource allocation or whatnot. But like, that's how you prioritize things. If you don't prioritize, then, you know, you do everything, but that's the prioritization. And also I noticed the fact that like biggest challenge in security teams is, is, is budget relevant and the security, you know, um, there are not enough security people to hire. So even if you are not constrained by resources or budget, you are constrained by how many people you have who can actually execute this. So you should be always approach this very lean format and you should be pushing on getting results where you can go back and say, hey, I'm visibly better now. I fixed all this problem. I had all these live applications with tons of unpatched stuff, tons of like zero days that we have discovered and fixed. Now let's start shifting left, which is going to cost even more. So I need to get that budget now. But now I've got an argument to make that conversation because I've got, I've got actual data.
Yeah. So if I if I think about deployment, how you move forward in this, my guess is number one, you've got to get an inventory of your applications. And I think a lot of people still struggle with how many applications do I have? Where are they in my environment? So uh, there, th this is not an easy uh, problem to solve. But I think you have to start there. Once I understand where those applications are, do I do something as simple as deploy a web app firewall and a good dynamic scanner that helps me start to understand what's going on on the runtime side of those applications, right? Because the WAF could give me some protections, my dynamic analysis, my dynamic scanning helps me identify some of the runtime vulnerabilities. Is that a really like kind of table stakes way to approach that? Um, first and then once you make some success there now you think you think about how far left can i go to move move that process forward does that make sense Farah? yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so you know let, let me explain how we how we approach this and pretty much like you said so the first thing is you know the discovery piece first you need to understand what you have so you know we we have discovery piece so it's it you know you put the brands in and we discover all of that and now you got an inventory it takes a little bit to get where you want to be like all the brand names and everything and especially in these organizations it's huge but once you got that and some companies actually do have it internally up to a level so they can provide maybe 80 percent out of the box say here is the applications that i know of and if there's anything else, let, let's see if we can discover it. And once that you have that inventory, the first immediate approach is like, let's get a scan sweep. Like, so this is like unauthenticated, mm. just hit all the targets. And part of the purpose, two, two things in here. First, you want to create some sort of risk profile. And, and the second, you want to create an inventory. A, a, you know, an inventory with actual uh, metrics assigned to it. To give you an idea, Let's say in 2000 applications, when you scan 2000 applications, what you're in public 2000 applications, what you are going to see, almost 500 are either dormant apps, are like one page brochures, like complete redirects, nothing within them actually, no data, whatnot. So like 500 will be like mix of that. So there will be like almost nothing in them. And then you will have like 1500 in a mix of things. And but what you want to understand, hey, like, am I running a PHP version that's been vulnerable for the last five years? Oh. Am I running all these components? So there's like very basics. But also you will actually get all the real vulnerabilities. So once you're in this stage, and I, I will be talking for like the, you know, NetSparker approach here, the advantage of NetSparker that, you know, NetSparker can prove a vulnerability is real. So when you have like 1500 applications, and you got maybe uh, you know fifteen thousand issues reported to you. You know a significant chunk of them are one hundred percent are true. There is a very clear assigned exploitation risk and real data attached to it. So you know these are real vulnerabilities gonna get you hacked today, and no questions asked. You don't have to double check anything. So as an organization, this is actually you know one week of operation. Get the discovery. Get the script scan, which is obviously on the cloud and scale. So it literally takes like two days at most, right, based on the, the slowest website. That well, we're gonna and scan just and a comment to that, Farah, and I've used a lot of web app mm -hmm. scanning tools. 
that sparkler skins will actually complete, right? <laughs> because I think we've all been in that situation, right? Where we're listening and we're running a skin and we're like, oh my God, it's taking like days. Like, I don't know what's going on. And one thing I really loved about NetSparker was not just the validation, but the scans will actually complete. Like, I, I don't know what kind of special sauce you got in there, but and I'm sure you can elaborate on that. But it was great for me to be able to scan large numbers of applications, big applications, small applications, and actually have those scans come to completion within a reasonable amount of time. To, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm digressing a little bit, but the touch to what you said is, uh, one philosophy we internally have in the web application scanning, there is no website in the world that legitimately needs to take more than 12 hours to scan. There is just simply none. Mm. If you are taking more than 12 hours, there is a bug in your software or there yeah. is a lack of feature that actually understands uh, understand the website as it's supposed to be. So this can be you know, the most common issues like URL rewrite or like repetition yep. of the forms and a bunch of other things. I like so many things like that. But if you got that right, if you understand that, and we did understand it from the beginning. So whenever I see a website that takes longer than that, that's a buck ticket. Mm -hmm. We analyze it, we figure out what is the problem, we see the patterns, then we either implement features, we fi fix boxes, you know, whatever is causing us to, you know, not to detect URL, right? Or, you know, not to detect like that repetition of forms. Now we are attacking the same uh, same input like 100 times, despite of the fact it's sitting to the same code in the back end. Right. Um, so I think that just like created this culture within the technical organization that we are constantly, oh, it has to be this, like this is our maximum limit. If it's hitting that limit, right. something is wrong. So let's see how we can improve it. You know, I'm I'm ignoring the fact like your network is slow, etc. I'm only talking about like sure. you know your connection works, website yeah. is responsive, yet it's slow. Right. Or yeah. it takes ages. <laughs> yeah. But I mean what I what I hear you saying first is that your technical team takes ownership of those and goes let's first assume that it's something that we can fix, right? It's some bug in our code and we're gonna go fix it. And that's the right approach. You know, it's it's quite funny. I've seen this industry, unfortunately, since we you know we got into it ten years ago. Uh, when I started, every single vendor said, hey, false positive, learn to live with it. It's just what it is, right? right? <laughs> and then, you know, websites taking ages and the vendors would say, oh, fix your website, mm -hmm. right? And they would say, the later than it came, oh, you didn't do the configuration. So it's been always like this customer yeah. is stupid or didn't do their job or, you know, honestly, this is real. I've seen one example that the customer uh, the web, web application scanner didn't able to, yeah, didn't able to find a vulnerability. And they reported the problem because they manually found it later on. And the response was, oh, your web application is responding with this like status 500 for not normal reasons. Therefore, our scanner cannot find the vulnerability. Fix your applications so we can find vulnerabilities. Yeah. It made no it's sense. Like, so like it, it, it's like your website returning a bunch of 404 not founds. Oh, it, 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 nothing's <laughs> wrong with your app. It's all good. You can't find anything. Yeah. And you know what? I, I've kind of like caught the conversation that you were having these behavioral tools. Um, and it kind of reminded me when we started web application security scanning, it was quite similar. And the core reason for it um, you can see a lot of products are claiming they are doing stuff, 
but it's very extremely hard to validate those claims, how good they are doing. Mm. And when no one is challenging them, market becomes stagnant because customer mm. buys anyway, because there is no metric, there is no benchmark. Like you cannot say I'm working, you know, I'm blocking vulnerabilities 50% than everyone else. And here is my third party benchmark to prove that. So lack of that very engineering mindset approach to this kind of problems and almost intentional or intentionally hiding it from the market that creates this bunch of competitors competing on marketing and the buzzwords rather than real value, which exactly right. how it was when we got into the market 10 years ago. Mm. Um, so now if, if I've scanned 2000 applications, what am I looking for in those results Farah, to help me prioritize, right? Because we know that some customers will say, well, we'll just take the most critical vulnerabilities, right? But many of us, you know, all of us on the panel and most of us listening know that it's not just about the severity of the vulnerability. It's how, how it impacts my application, what type of data that application is storing, the ease of which it could be uh, exploited, the probability, all of those things factor into risk, right? So what's your recommendation to, to customers when they're looking at especially such a large result set? Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, following that story to, you know, uh, what you said, like, let's say 2,000 applications, we found, like, 15,000 issues, and some of them are like very clearly assigned severity, very clearly proven. So you got like a, a good chunk of that, the real vulnerability that you know, like without double checking. And now, as you said, like how do you prioritize them? So in a normal, in a very good web security program, in a mature web security program, you actually got risk categories. So you got like your mission critical websites, right. uh, that you know there's a data, private data behind, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can have buckets like brochure website, it's just a website, even if it gets hacked, yeah, you know, it's not nice. We might hit on the branding and a bunch of other things. It's not the end of the world. We will, we will just, you know, replace it. We went to a backup or whatever, right? Right. Um, but if you are actually beginning to that, you will be missing a lot of, of that. So your risk management will be all over the place because you are just trying to understand what's happening. So in reality, if you haven't done your risk management or that grouping risk assignment into the website groups that you are scanning, then what you will be doing, um, okay, let me take all these critical vulnerabilities. And the critical is, you know, high-end critical in web application scanning, you know, in web application security point of view, it's very straightforward, to be honest. You're looking at um, the top level issue, SQL injection mm -hmm. and the code injection, code execution kind of things like literally can own the server mm -hmm. or local file inclusion, got the source code, got the data from right. the server. So these are like your top of the top of the line things. And every single one of them, it's so hard for them to be like not be important. Only case will be, hey, I got a SQL injection, my brochure website. So someone can change the content or, you know, um, share malware or whatnot. But, you know, it's never good, but it's not the end of the, end of the right. you know. Yeah, the business, uh, the business impact, I think, is the, the factor, yeah. right? That it may not Correct. impact the business all that much, even though it's a critical vulnerability in the yeah, terms is, of I think the vulnerability Right. So unfortunately, if you want to get somewhere good, you really need to assign the risk, you know, and, and that's like generally the, the way we done in NetSparker, um, you know, NetSparker solution. You have website groups and you got like risk assigned to website groups. And when you find a vulnerability, you can then create rules based on those website groups. So you can say, hey, if this is a mission critical website, 
I don't only want a ticket on the developer who is going to fix it, but I only want uh, an SMS or a Slack message sent to this CTO, like whomever. And you know, it can be it can be a bunch of rules like that. So that will give you uh, more visibility into those mission critical stuff. So you can have kind of create different rules based on your risk groups. But that's where you know you need to, as, as you said, like you need to figure out the business impact based on the risks. But the vulnerability itself will give you a very good idea about like the severity that needs to be fixed. It's just the verity is, is, is what, you know, the real difference in that. So you added a really important step that I, I want to make sure people understand. Mm -hmm. it's, not just it's not just discovery of the asset, but you also have to classify the severity of that asset, right? In, in whatever model you want to use, I don't really care. Um, you can use confidentiality, integrity, availability, mm -hmm. you can use something else. But discovery and classification will help you identify how to prioritize all the vulnerabilities you find when you do the dynamic scan, which is also helping you with your inventory, because it's that correlation of the asset criticality and the severity of the vulnerability that I think will help people better prioritize at least the initial set of things they need to fix, whether it's a web app firewall that they have to put in place with certain rules to block things, or it's more advanced and, and they require some code updates, right? Regardless. That will help, I think, streamline it, and it's that it's that classification step that that needs to be uh, addressed as well. Definitely, and you know, once you are there, you know, continuing that journey, like how you start this. Once you are there, now you got the vulnerabilities, and ideally, you might ideally you have a risk assessment, but let's say you don't, like you are just starting this. So one thing you can do now, you need to, now you've got a picture of what applications are there and what, how many of them are like seriously vulnerable. And you're like just almost like one week into this, right? <clears throat> so one problem you might run into uh, that your other departments who has been scanned might report you for abuse. So like we, right. we get this all the time. Like mm -hmm. we, you know, we work with an organization and some other department in the organization reports us, oh, they're like attacking us, but while, you know, it's their own own organization doing it. But right. that's how but big good they are. They, like good they, they not organize this. Good they noticed, right? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a good, good thing. thing. Yeah, I think the percentages on that very low, but it's a yeah. good thing they notice. So once you are there, now we've got a very good understanding of like what is really, really bad. So on the risk, generally, what, what's a really ideal way to do that? Take your top offenders, like what are the most critical stuff, and then start your risk assignments from them. Ideally, in some good, you know, mature organizations historically built this kind of risk profile, already can import that into the system, but generally they don't and they start building it. And in here also, that's where the web application firewall actually comes in. So yeah, you need to find these vulnerabilities, then you, you, need, you can automatically create bug tickets for relevant developers and all of that. But even before that, you know that it will go to the developer, they will fix it, they will deploy, they will test, it will take a while, and you need to do this organization-wide, which requires a lot of communication. And in many organizations, security team cannot even just communicate with their team. So there are like barriers in between, which is like an organizational separate challenge. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but one thing you can do at, again, that level, even going further right, you know, so instead of left, we are going even further right to web application firewall. Now you can configure NetSparker and, you know, um, to automatically patch these vulnerabilities at web application firewall levels. 
right? So you don't have to do that manually either. So you set up your risk, and after this risk assignment, after this level, or heck, everything just patched on the web application firewall level in runtime or as an afterthought, but it's all automated. And the good thing, again, if any of these were false positives, you wouldn't able to do that because you might block legitimate traffic. Mm. But because you can trust it's not a false positive, not, you know, it's okay to just go to the web application firewalls at the API level and just patch it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, it, I think it, it, well, I'm not a huge fan of the WAF infrastructure, right? But I like it as at least a temporary measure to reduce your exposures, right? And I think there's politically, and I've seen this, uh, you know, firsthand uh, in a large organization, especially you've got one group and it's led by a person and they've decided to outsource that development. And like you said, Farrell, like you're just very disconnected from that group. And it's going to take some politics and schmoozing to, to get to that group, to get to their developers, to try and, you know, bring them into the fold because someone's going, well, we need to build this app fast. Maybe I outsource it to another group or I'm in another country. And, and this was the we developed it kind of like way outside the scope of the enterprise. Right. Politics are going to take uh, time there. There's also the case where. We've deployed this application and we kind of forgot about it. Like, I don't know, there was turnover in the group and no one's really actively developing and we thought everything was fine. And now we find out, wow, we've got this application. No one's really maintaining or supporting this little or big application that we just kind of forgot about, right? But what that gives you in both cases, if you deploy the WAF in front of it, is it buys you time to fix those problems, right? Buys you time to bring a group that may have gone rogue, right, for whatever reason, back into the fold. It gives you time to readjust your resources to go, I'm going to pull some development resources from other areas and we're going to, you know, maybe have a plan to fix the really bad things at first and then have a larger plan that's going to replace, you know, this application or phase it out. Maybe it didn't, maybe you already have something that replaced it and you just haven't completed the steps to phase it out, right? So those are all things that I think all of us have seen, right? Yeah, and, and WAF is exactly for that. If you make WAF anything more than that, you will mm. have a problem. And Agreed. like, I mean, we have seen, there was this crazy example. A, a WAF vendor back in the day uh, created a competition by knowingly, not that they didn't know the results. Now, knowingly, you know, uh, like how to bypass WAF, right? Like, and, you know, send your bypasses to exploit these vulnerabilities behind this WAF. And and I think within 48 hours, there were like 10 different bypasses, and which is great for them because they then went back and fixed those problems. But it just shows how a determined attacker, when they know there's a vulnerability, mm. uh, the bypassing WAF and finding a zero day in WAF, especially because of the combinational application, is way easier than a bunch of other things because it's a very black box, very blanket solution, which we know historically never ever worked in security whether it's application right. or any other field it never works when you I have mean, that like a one blanket solution for everything right there's so many ways especially in modern web applications to format your data format your requests to to bypass that that that's you know largely why we've moved to a lot more intelligent solutions than than just a WAF. but i like it as a stopgap measure Oh, exactly. Exactly. And obviously, there are like massive challenges. Like you got your WAF in a very high level. It's supposed to work with anything. But then your PHP, your ASP.NET, your Perl, your whatever, your Python, um, you know, analyzes, encodes, decodes, like yes. um, changes, formats so differently. It's mm. virtually impossible for WAF to right. have that kind of complexity of understanding of the data. Yep. Um, but yeah. So... 
And when you got that, now you got this like stopgap solution, you are putting on VAF until you fix stuff. Now you actually got a really good place. Now, you know what you have in a good way, in a very um, large amount. And then you know what are the worst offenders in terms of how many vulnerabilities, severity and all of that. You ideally have some sort of risk assignment or starting, but now it's a perfect time to move left or shift left or whatever. And what you do is, okay, now I know where should I be starting from instead of just trying to go like 50, 100 different development teams onboarded on that. I can take the groups and I can say, hey, clearly these are the worst of websites created by the same team. And that's very likely correlation, to be honest. Or maybe the very same technology, maybe it's technology, you know, drives some of those vulnerabilities and it happens all the time. Then, okay, now I know how to prioritize my SDLC efforts. And where do I start from SAST? What do I do? How do I train? Now you know what your prioritization is because mm-hmm. you've got a very good picture of the outcome. So you immediately take action in stopping it, and now you fixing the vulnerabilities, but also you are building your SDLC in the right way with the right prioritization, because now you know who needs it the most within your organization. Agreed. And NetSpark, NetSparker rather, is a great platform uh, for that. As uh, I mentioned before, I've got uh, hands-on experience with it. Uh, it's a fantastic platform, fantastic tool. Uh, our listeners can find more at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. And I really do like, uh, especially in these scenarios where you've got a large number of web, app, web apps starting in this, uh, you know, scanning, discovery, vulnerability identification phase to help formulate uh, all of that other work that has to come to move into a, a true DevOps process, an agile process, redevelop or develop your CI/CD pipeline. Those are all those things take time, and with this prioritization, I think it's uh, I think it's the right order. To be honest with you. Outstanding, Farah. Thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. Again, securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. With that, we'll take a short break and come back with our next interview, Heather from Untangle. 